practice has been to read a prayer together. Uh, so I'll read the white part and you all will read the blue part. Um, I think this is a repeat of one we've done before. So, Almighty God, the breath of your Holy Spirit inspires artists, poets, and scientists. The power of your supreme knowledge makes them prophets and interpreters of your laws who reveal the depths of your creative wisdom. Their works speak unwittingly of you. How great are you in your creation? How great are you in man? Glory to you, showing your unsurpassable power in the laws of the universe. Glory to you, for all nature is filled with your laws. <coughs> Glory to you for what you have revealed to us in your mercy. Glory to you for what you have hidden from us in your wisdom. Glory to you for the inventiveness of the human mind. Glory to you for the dignity of man's labor. Glory to you for the tongues of fire that bring inspiration. Glory, Glory to you, O oh God, from age to age. Amen. All right. Thank you very much. Um, so, um, we uh, mentioned last time, uh, we're, I think we have one more class uh, in this session. That's what I've been told. I thought this was going to be the last one, but I've been informed there's one more. Um, so, if that's the case, uh, anyway, I want to thank you all for joining us on this journey uh, through this summer. Um, we do, do still have time for a few more questions and comments and so forth, so feel free to email me. I've gotten a few um, comments and questions from you all, so we'll try to wrap that into our last <laughs> meeting together if possible. But uh, definitely love to hear your thoughts, and um, if you have any interest in seeing this kind of conversation or related conversations, uh, go forward from here. So uh, this week, um, Emily and Asher and I uh, took a uh, trip to Los Alamos. This is probably not everyone's idea of a summer vacation, <laughs> but uh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that, uh, that we do. And um, so there's a couple things that, that stood out to me. So there's not actually that much left from the uh, original um, project in this area. Most of it um, was torn down uh, fairly, fairly quickly, just as it was put up fairly quickly. It was put up as temporary housing and buildings and so forth, and then to torn down almost as quickly. There are really only about two buildings that are left. One of them is Oppenheimer's house. And um, this is not open to the public, but it is there. And the um, house next door, which is Hans Beta's house. And um, these, both of these houses are what's on, uh, what's on what's called uh, Bathtub Row, because these were the only houses that, could, that were nice enough to have bathtubs in them. So as the military came in and built out all this lodging for people, they didn't build bathtubs, they didn't build very nice uh, places, especially for all these professors and people who, what they were used to, but Oppenheimer and Hans Bethe had, um, had bathtubs, so they lived in the fancy area. So, uh, like I said, this is Oppenheimer's house, uh, Hans Bethe's house was next door, and they have turned it into a little bit of a museum, kind of a, just a small museum. A lot of what's in it is just kind of, um, uh, you know, furniture and so forth from that era. Hans Beta was the head of the theoretical division at Los Alamos. So supposedly this is the role that Oppenheimer would have wanted to play, kind of leading the theoretical work over the physicists and all this kind of stuff. But Hans Beta um, actually did it. 
And so this was kind of, um, yeah, this is kind of the epicenter of, of that kind of theoretical work. So one of the things I noticed in terms of the, the furniture of this house, um, it's interesting, okay, it's, you know, it's um, from this uh, prior era, it's kind of uh, nostalgic in some ways, but one item of furniture stood out to me, and that was um, this Nobel Prize um, given to uh, Frederick Raines uh, in 1995 for the detection of the neutrino. And so we talked about uh, neutrinos in this class a few weeks ago. We talked about the super cameo candy detector in Japan, 3,000 feet down, this giant tube full of ultra-pure water uh, designed to detect these almost invisible, um, imperceptible um, uh, uh, particles, right? And um, so the first uh, detection of the neutrino actually... W um, the experiment that detected it was um, concocted here in uh, Los Alamos. And um, that, uh, and it was actually the experiment that, um, that was concocted for it uh, was um, made in 1951. The Nobel Prize only came out in 1950, or 1995 for this. And at that point, um, Frederick Raines' um, co-author had already died. They don't give the Nobel Prize uh, posthumously. So, but yeah, this work was done in 1951 here with Han, uh, Hans Bethe and uh, these other physicists, and it was actually detected in 1956. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting tie-in with uh, some of the stuff we've uh, talked about here. And the, the difficulty of finding the neutrino is so high, at first they thought it was going to be impossible. Um, and they eventually found some ways to, to do it. And so this was called Project Poltergeist, because this was like hunting for ghosts. That was the name of it. Um, so another thing that uh, stood out to me about this house was, um, as I think out here in the desert, as these uh, scientists were hanging around, they didn't have a lot to do with their spare time. And so Hans Bethe decided one day at his dinner party to pull out um, some paint and got all these scientists to put, leave their footprints on a board. And uh, so under each of the footprints, uh, people have written their names. And I noticed uh, this one is uh, the footprint of Enrico Fermi. He was actually the person who first came up with the model of the neutrino. He's from Italy. He came to America um, because of uh, uh, fear of persecution for his Jewish wife. And he... Um, uh, he, he first modeled the, the neutrino, and he named it neutrino for the little one. So this is, uh, this is the person who named the neutrino, uh, and he's left his footprint here uh, where the uh, person who uh, first detected the neutrino has left a Nobel Prize. All that happening pretty much in this tiny little house in Los Alamos. So that was an interesting uh, crossover for me just to kind of notice um, those things. Yeah. It is, yeah. And that's another area where maybe uh, I've uh, run through, <laughs> run across Fermi a lot, is thinking about the detection of alien civilizations and, and what that would look like and why perhaps we haven't detected them. Yeah. In the Smithsonian Magazine a few months ago, maybe April or May, <clears throat> there was a big article on Los Alamos 
and pictures of areas that are not available oh, to the yeah. public. Yeah. Of, I mean, they had lots of pictures of buildings and, and mm -hmm. experimental areas and mm -hmm. things that was... Yeah. It's probably online now since it's... Yeah. So it's a, so the um, the national labs are there. Um, they're they they've like moved them across uh, across the road, um, and so where these uh, where these areas were at the time of the original Manhattan Project, there's kind of a little pond, Ashley Pond, and all the buildings were kind of clustered around there. And like I said, these uh, this house, these two houses are basically the only ones that are remaining. From that time, but the the other the rest of the national labs are there, and of course, yeah. Um, if you can uh, find pictures of, of how the rest of it was laid out, that's um, some pretty interesting stuff. Um, there is uh, in Los Alamos a nice um, science museum, so we took um, our kid there, and it has um, uh, some of the science of nuclear physics. Um, also, they have this little playroom where you can do little experiments with radioactive materials, uh, seriously, uh, and, uh, and also marbles. And um, so we were, we were letting him play in this, and uh, if you notice in the background, there's a chair in plexiglass. This is actually Oppenheimer's desk chair he used while he was working on the Manhattan Project. So they don't have a lot of historical uh, things here, but they have this one, and they've stuck it in the child's play area. So as he was dropping his marbles, and they were rolling under Oppenheimer's chair, and he was going under there to fish them out, I thought, this is a weird, uh, this is a weird moment. Yeah? Can you explain the process that you went through to convince your wife that this would be good. <laughs> what, what did you offer her? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah, what about that? I, I didn't watch it too closely. I think they might have retrofitted uh, a, a modern screen in the middle of that so, uh, so you could play... <laughs> videos on it. Yeah. All right. So um, there is another uh, kind of development in uh, science that happened um, while we were on this trip. Um, and so uh, the, in, on Wednesday, uh, two new papers came out in Nature um, uh, where they were allowing people who have been uh, paralyzed in various ways to uh, actually communicate and, and to speak using um, brain implants. And so they've been working on this for uh, uh, several years now. These two papers refer to um, different experiments they've done with a woman named Anne and a woman uh, named Pat. And uh, Anne was, um, I think she, she's been, uh, she had a stroke 18 years ago and has had um, motor paralysis. And um, Pat had a, has a form of sclerosis for 11 years that prevents her from using her facial muscles or controlling her facial muscles. So what these um, two uh, technologies have been doing is reading electrical signals um, from the brain and using them to synthesize speech. So to kind of understand where we are in this context, um, normal speech is about 150 words per minute. 
If you look at something like what Stephen Hawking used, where small muscles are used to control a device to spell out letters, you can get a couple of words per minute with a, t with a tool like that. So this technique, where it's actually reading uh, brain waves, this has been in a development for a few years. In 2021, they were able to get 18 words per minute out of it. Uh, as of now, they've gotten up to 78 words per minute. So this is um, really approaching um, real-time communication levels. And the way this actually works is, so there's, um, there are things implanted in, in the brain, and then there's an external device that reads signals off of them. And um, what it actually does is it uses um, some of the techniques that have been developed in ChatGPT. So ChatGPT, if, uh, if you understand this process, is basically built around trying to guess what a human would say next. And so they've, uh, the way they trained ChatGPT is they just ran it through every piece of text they could find, and they, at every point they asked the computer, what do you predict a human would say next? What is the next word that they're going to say? And um, as they've run through um, that kind of AI, it's basically been trained and updated continually until it gets better and better and better at predicting what a human would say in this situation. That's what ChatGPT does. Similar, they did with this. They spent two weeks uh, with Anne here um, basically in a similar training process where the computer was trying to predict what Anne was actually going to say. And so it's not reading precisely. It's not like you have a, a neuron or a signal that has the specific word or something like that. But it is giving those, uh, those triggers that you would expect when someone is trying to say that sound or say that um, phrase. And the computer can get better and better and better at actually learning to predict what the person is saying. And so this is um, really great um, progress in this area. With, if we can get there with two weeks training, um, then there's all kinds of questions. How, how far can we get with uh, many more weeks of training, with w working with many more people? Um, all kinds of possibilities are opening up here. Um, so as, as someone put it, um, uh, electrical engineer at UC San Diego, we're within striking range of turning these technologies into commercially viable medical devices. Yeah. Has, has anything been mentioned about this pointing to a mechanical telepathy? <laughs> well, this is essentially what it would be, right? Like, if you can communicate directly from your brain. But what's interesting is not it's not communicating thoughts, right? It's not that you're thinking something. It's that you are uh, essentially thinking that you are trying to say something, right? And so any of us, when we say something, we essentially, like, our brain thinks the th that, that we want to say it, and those sounds get ultimately triggered. So they're looking for this, these speech patterns in the brain that these uh, people have not used in uh, decades, right? But they're still there, these patterns that trigger speech. Um, so that's... Uh, yeah, it opens up all kinds of interesting uh, possibilities. Yeah. So, with that being the case, would that be something where somebody who has, say, was born without the ability to speak, they've never spoken before, would that potentially work the same for them, or would that? It would probably it would probably be different if they hadn't developed those speech um, centers in that way. But I don't think we actually fully know. We're not sure how much is kind of 
built into a human being versus how much is trained in. And so this is part of what they don't know about this is like how similar are different individuals even in in the way that their um, brains work with this stuff, right? Um, But yeah, so that will be um, some interesting discoveries um, and might, yeah, might lead down some new directions. But yeah, this is, uh, this is currently, um, like I said, this has, you know, some, uh, some, an implanted device in the brain an external one that reads it off of it. This is currently being set up to test and do experiments. Eventually, it would be something that a, a person could control themselves, fine-tune themselves, and control their own speech. Yeah. So they don't actually speak. Is there, like, an avatar that would speak for them? Yeah. So, um, that so they actually... The this is... Um, so they, they did a couple of different things. So um, what they did in this experiment here, they're... They're uh, printing out text, and the computer can synthesize uh, the text to to voice. Here they're doing multimodal, so they're actually um, trying to anticipate facial uh, gestures as well as speech as well as text all at the same time. And so um, it's, it's using... Like I said, it's using some of the same kinds of technology we've seen with ChatGPT to um, employ in this, this area. It's interesting that uh, ChatGPT is a form of AI that is not maybe what's intuitive for people. So when people set out to create um, artificial intelligence, they, um, they had some ideas about how to do it and how to uh, structure it. Most of those ideas haven't worked very well. What uh, ChatGPT and other similar um, frameworks do is they kind of mimic what the brain is already doing. And so that's kind of an interesting uh, feedback loop. We got um, more, better workable AI from imitating the brain, the actual structure of the brain, and now that's feeding back into some of these kinds of uh, new processes. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there is, um, there's an error rate, right? There's always an error rate. Um, and so the, they want to get that error rate down. Uh, at different, with different settings in this experiment, it went from 75% accurate to 95% accurate. But yeah, then you would have to correct. Just like when I'm typing or something and like type the wrong thing, I have to delete it, something like that. That would be the same thing a user of this would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they would have to use it like that, yeah, and correct it. Yeah. So the, the problem with all of this is, is chat GPT suggests what you would say. Right. But the person goes, maybe it's suggesting what I should say. Sure. And, and there's this sort of feedback loop where ChatGPT is influencing me to say things, not just the other way around. Right. And that's where the danger starts. Well, it's the same way with um, autocomplete, right? Like, uh, so <laughs> typing something to my wife and it says, like, okay, I'll say, you know, say that. Um, and, um, yeah, then you're like, well, wait a second. At some point, are we just two AIs talking to each other? Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, a lot about how you use that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. This is very beginnings, and so it's really promising that if we can get this far with this level of technology, like where we're going to be able to get in just a couple of years. Like I said, from from 2021 to now, we've gone from 18 words per minute with this kind of technology to 78 words per minute. Um, and the accuracy has been going way up. I think we can go a lot farther with this. Yeah, Having her in the loop yep. helps prevent it from doing what you were suggesting. 
Right, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's an important uh, aspect of this too. Um, this is being trained on uh, in, at this stage on individuals, right? And so they are training it uh, for what they're trying to do. And so that plays a, uh, a whole different role. And that's different than what most of us, the way most of us are using chat GPT, right? Like, so we're talking about training on what the human actually wants to do. Yeah. Joe, we talked about in past lessons about the idea of what technology does and the idea yeah. of God giving us the ability to create technology. And I can just imagine that if this gets far away, that it would be something after 18 years or something like that yeah. to hear her and yeah. say a prayer, to be able to do something like yeah. that, and you want to say, well, that, yeah, yeah, that's happened because God wanted to happen. Yeah. This idea of, and so I just, I just think it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it can be a slippery slope, I understand that, but the fact is, is that I would hope that yeah. the good that comes out of it yeah. is far outweighs any negative. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of blessing to be had in, in this for many, many people uh, in, in all kinds of ways, relationally and, and otherwise, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we'll do, um, I'll go ahead and read uh, the scripture uh, from Ephesians, um, a couple of different passages here. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance us to do. All right, so in this uh, class so far, we've talked about um, the three paths of science and, and faith, right? How these things can play out in a relationship of conflict, a relationship where they are parting of ways, they're irrelevant to each other, and a relationship where they're actually deeply intertwined. We've tried to pursue this third idea, pursuing the idea that science is a divine calling, that our creator has called us to explore our creation, to understand it, to learn about God through it, and to use that knowledge to actually bless creation, to care for and uplift life. We've talked about the idea that science was a religious mission, that uh, the scientific revolution emerged from a, a rediscovery of these kinds of truths, um, and that as a result, science was shaped by faith, that many of science's assumptions about an orderly universe, about laws governing creation, that these things can be discovered by human beings, these are uh, placed there, uh, in essence, by its origin in this kind of life of faith. And the idea that, in fact, the way that we discover those truths is by a process of organized, sustained humility. That kind of a value emerged from um, this contemplation of faith. Uh, over the last several weeks, we've kind of turned and, and asked some deeper questions. Why does science actually work? What sustains science? When we do science, are we moving away from God or towards God? And so we've talked about the idea that science is actually sustained by grace. 
that the only reason we can expect to live in an orderly universe that is comprehensible to us, that is organized by laws, and that has been given into our capacity to understand, is because of God's grace. And this is what I think Scripture points to, that God has poured out this uh, knowledge on creation and given it to all people, both believers and non and then we've, we've kind of been turning and asking a, a slightly different question. Why does science need faith? We understand that science can lead to, uh, that faith can lead to science. We understand that science, it, it works and exists by the grace of God. But why does science actually need faith? Does it need faith? Or has it outgrown uh, faith in some sense, right? And so kind of another way of pointing, uh, of talking about this, we could say science is by grace, Science is through faith, um, but what is science for? And that's the question that I think people of faith need to be addressing. And so we've talked about this in terms of these, this why question, right? So as John Polkinghorne, uh, 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 both a physicist and an uh, Anglican clergy person, said, uh, science asks how things happen. There are questions of meaning and value and purpose which science does not address. Religion asks why. And it is my belief that we can and should ask both questions about the same event. Um, he said, uh, seeing the world with two eyes, having binocular vision, enables me to understand more than I could with either eye on its own. So he's saying seeing with both um, faith and seeing with science allows me to see dimensions of reality that I could not see. So I need both of those to understand. And so we've talked about this in terms of the eyes of science and the eyes of faith, that we can look at events like this in kind of common everyday terms. We can see an apple falling from a tree, or we can look at it with the eyes of science and see this uh, force of gravity which connects um, an apple to the earth and connects the planets to the solar system, right? This elegant and beautiful um, order to creation. That's what science allows us to see. And then the eyes of faith actually kind of zoom out and it shows us um, that God has created this order that God has placed a human being made in his image uh, with the capacity to understand that order, right? And that this is not trivial. This is an amazing, incredible um, fact about the world. And that in discovering um, this uh, part of God's creation, we as people of faith are going to say, that's not an accident. When God created the laws of gravity, the laws of physics, the laws of nature, God intended for moments like this when human beings made in God's image would discover those laws and discovering them, understand something about God, understand something about the Creator, and then understand something about the ways those laws could be used to bless creation. That's um, the picture here. And so we've tried to kind of tiptoe into how we answer why. When we ask that why question, we want to be able to actually address it. We want to speak to it. Why did God give us these laws, right? So we ask the how, what are the laws of nature? We ask the why, why, does, why do we have the capacity to understand these laws? And so um, we've looked at the idea that the scriptural story gives us an answer, that God created, revealed himself in creation, and then called human beings to seek out that knowledge that he had placed in creation for the gift, the uplifting, the caring for, the cultivation of life in the created order. So we've seen scriptures like Ephesians, uh, where we read 
Uh, a minute ago, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We live in a story where God is calling us to use this knowledge to bless creation. Uh, Romans 8, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. This is part of our role here. Creation itself is waiting for us to serve our role as children of God, right? Blessing and uplifting and cultivating creation. And the kinds of things that we uh, think that God wants us to do um, are all through the New Testament. Um, so Matthew 25, right? Jesus says, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me. And I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Christ expects us to use our power, our capacity, our knowledge to heal and bless and care for and uplift life. That seems to be the picture we have. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's an area where the so-called soft sciences and the hard sciences come together, and that is the the innate, uh, the built-in curiosity mm-hmm. of human beings that we're always want to know what is that and why and how how can I use it and all this sort of thing. Yeah. It seems to be something we don't learn, but it's there. Yeah. Nature. Yeah. So that that curiosity, that drive to like, what can we do with this? What should we do with this? This is what I'm I'm trying to suggest that people of faith, when we actually engage science from whatever standpoint that we're coming from, um, that we have a story to tell. We have a story to locate science within. Right. It's not just that we show up to. Uh, the discussion and our, you know, kind of exploring the question. It's actually, we have a narrative of a God who is a creator, God who has created, uh, and who has called humanity to act in creation. That's the story that we as people of faith can bring to science. And when we do that, I think we actually give science a larger meaning, a larger purpose, something to do, right? We can talk to someone who has made a a brand new discovery, and we can say, you know, that is a blessing that God intended from the foundation of the world, and it has a purpose. And let's talk about what some of those purposes might be, how this might be part of this unfolding new chapter of the story between God and humanity and creation. I think that's the thing we can bring into science. So when we ask, why does science need faith? Science needs faith to convey this story, this meaning, this purpose. What is science for? Where is it going? What is it doing? And I think that opens up another kind of way of seeing where we um, see God's ultimate uh, larger purposes at work. Um, so in, I want to throw a difficulty here, though. I want to put a challenge on the table. So in um, the uh, award-winning film, The Theory of Everything, which portrays the life of Stephen Hawking, there's a moment where he introduces himself to his future um, spouse, And she says, what are you studying? And he says, cosmology. And she says, what is that? And his answer is that that cosmology is a kind of religion for intelligent atheists. 
Now, this is what this is a movie quote, right? So, um, uh, but this is a, a, a perspective, right? He's saying um, cosmology is a religion for atheists, right? What does that make you think? What is your feeling from this? Everybody needs something to believe in and follow, even if it's not based on spirituality. Yeah. I remember a, a Jeff Moore in the Distance song uh, where there's a line that says, uh, it takes a lot of faith to say we're accidents of nature. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What else? Well, just kind of like he was saying, it, it, everybody's looking for something, but to me that kind of stops short. Mm-hmm. It goes so far as to say there is something really cool and really complex, but it doesn't get past the thing to the why or the mm-hmm. how did it get here. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Any other thoughts? Does the word intelligent infer the people who are religious? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it it could be. Yeah. It infers there's also dumb Yeah. Now there you go. Yeah. Do, do your uh, you know, two by two. Any other thoughts? Is the implication there that that uh, the study of cosmology is so complex that it, it's smarter than nothing? I don't know. Uh, maybe it's, it's hard to know. Like I said, this is this is not this is a movie quote. This is a something that a screenwriter thought captured the idea, right? The idea that that someone like Hawking is working. Yeah, on. I'm just curious. I guess you have a, a better experience. The stereotype, and I know one person like this, is um, if they're not faith, if they don't have any faith in any traditional religion, right? Yeah. Then, that it's they're just smart and we use our faith as a crutch and sure. they don't need faith. So I challenge yeah. your thing, why does faith why does science need faith? I'm like, I don't think he needs faith. Yeah. yeah. What's the are are many scientists like that, do you think? Um, yeah, so I think one of the one of the reasons that that this is a a topic that is a concern for us is not necessarily because so many scientists are like this, but um, but that there are prominent scientists who are like this, right? So there are people like Hawking and, and Richard Dawkins and other things like that who really um, take a strong anti-religious stance and connect that very strongly to their science. So it's not necessarily numbers, but it is like these really prominent individuals who kind of have that, that picture, right? And it does, yeah, it, I think it raises a lot of questions. It raises a lot of questions for us, particularly because in our, in our world, um, with science being so effective, we do kind of look at scientists as like the, the holders of wisdom, right? Um, you can see this in how people think about Einstein, right? They look at quotes, not just about what he says about science, but also like how he thinks about life and all that kind of stuff. We think that these people have wisdom to convey, and so when they convey, you know, this kind of anti-religious attitude, it, it's challenging. It's, it's, it's difficult to have a discussion yeah. with, with this friend. Yeah, there, and then, yeah. So, do you think this quote, whether it's Hawking or it's a screenwriter, yeah. is saying cosmology answers the why question? 
I think um, I think it's getting at somewhere near that, right? Like cosmology does like solves this this need or fills this hole, something like that. Aaron, then there. Um, I think probably until recently, I mean, maybe even recently, uh, people of faith have kind of done this to themselves mm-hmm. by denying denying the importance of science. Yeah. I think that that um, if people of faith had more background, like in this class, like talking about the relationship between scripture and science, yeah. that it would be people of faith would, could be more defensive, not defensive, but could defend their faith better in this kind of thing. I think people of religion have tried to thwart science for so long yeah. that there's kind of still that overhang of people of religion are not that intelligent, you know, which of course is not true, but it's kind yeah. of They've done it to themselves. Yeah, it, when we when we position uh, faith and science as as this kind of competition, we're already setting ourselves up for a bad a bad day. So the, I had a lot of discussions like this in college. Yeah, and some of us came to the conclusion, or I was told this was a conclusion. Why is an irrelevant question? Okay. Yeah. For cosmology. Yeah. 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 Atheists, and um, the religion, the belief is that science will give us every answer. We just don't know enough yeah, yet. Right. But right. I believe it will because it has. Right. Like yeah. we say, I believe God will because He has. Yeah. But you get to the you get to the very where did everything come from question. I mean, you always get there. Yeah. And everybody throws up their hands, and we say God, and scientists go. Well, we just don't know. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and then you get another beer. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... Sports. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, and I, I understand that, but they come along like this, and then discoveries made, and all the things that were assumed sure. were wrong, and they've got to start over, or they add another integer to a, to a sure, yeah, equation yeah. to try to say, well, this sounds pretty good. Right. Uh, and it's this idea is that will you ever know enough? And I get the question is eventually you won't because when you reach deeper in there, there's going to be something else farther on. And, yeah. and though the, the journey might be interesting, you may never get to the destination until the judgment. Yeah, there, so there's there's different kinds of knowledge here, right? So part we, we ask, we want to understand how things work. We also need knowledge to act, right? Uh, we think of ethical knowledge, but also like purpose and so forth. We need to act, and we don't know. Well, we don't know like all the answers, so we have to act before we know all the answers. Yeah. Oh, well, I look at that, and I hear um, spiritual direction. The last question that I said about the Holy Quran. Yeah. Tell me about the God that you believe. Yeah. Because a lot of times, like those inherent views of God, are not God at all. Yeah. And so, I hear hope in that of yeah. like experiencing God in creation. Yeah. And so, it, and it's different from probably what you experience of the God who's perceived. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I would look at that and see an opening of a door into the cross of Christ, basically talking. He is saying, I am here. Yeah. This is where I'm at. Meet me here. Um, and in so, I can I understand that he has this strong, strong background, 
Yeah. look at a couple other things. Uh, this is a quote by Carl Sagan. Humility is the only just response in a confrontation with the universe, but not a humility that prevents us from seeking the nature of the universe we are admiring. If we seek that nature, then love can be informed by truth instead of being based on ignorance or self-deception. I would suggest that science is, at least in part, informed worship. Now, Carl Sagan is not a traditionally religious person, right? Um, uh, but like uh, Stephen Hawking, he seems uh, to inevitably describe science in terms of religion, in terms of worship, in terms of even faith. Uh, Carl Sagan likes to use uh, the term spirituality to describe um, the stuff. We, we looked at um, the, a couple of these mega projects uh, over the last several weeks, uh, and uh, referencing this, um, this fusion engineer, he says there's no better analog to cathedrals in the modern world than our mega-scale physics experiments. Thousands of individual careers dedicating to constructing colossal works of cutting-edge engineering to better know the mind of God. I don't think Andrew Cote is a uh, conventionally, traditionally religious person either, and yet he sees in these works of science something that is aiming towards the transcendent, an analog to the cathedrals of, of the past. Uh, Richard Dawkins, he says, uh, all the great religions have a place for awe, for ecstatic transport at the wonder and beauty of creation. And it's exactly this feeling of spine-shivering, breath-catching awe, almost worship, this flooding of the chest with ecstatic wonder that modern science can provide. The merest glance through a microscope at the brain of an ant or through a telescope at a long-ago galaxy of a billion worlds is enough to render pokey and parochial the very psalms of praise. So Richard Dawkins here is also a very anti-theistic person, and yet he finds himself describing um, science in terms of worship. Right? Um, I think this is actually a, a widespread um, fact. And so... Um, I want to suggest maybe a way to think about this and approach it. Um, in, um, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul uh, enters into the Athens, and he goes up on Mars Hill, which is the center of pagan learning. And He's, he's gone through the city and he's looked at all the items of worship, all the idols, all the altars, and so forth. And so this is what he says when he gets up. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul, in this thing, he is looking at their worship, um, as limited as it is, and he's not uh, denigrating it. He's affirming it, right? You are worshiping something. That is a legitimate worship. 
let me show you what you are actually engaged in. Let me show you the God that you are actually aiming for. And this is the God he talks about, the God who made the world and everything in it. The Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples built by human hands. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul's answer to this uh, worship of the unknown God is to point to God as creator and humans as made in God's image as children of God who can understand that creation. And I think this is really powerful because um, I, I think the reaction of atheistic scientists to discovery, to saying, like, I'm filled with awe, and I'm filled with worship, and I'm filled with all these things, that's a legitimate reaction, right? If you are walking on holy ground, like, you take off your shoes, right? Even if you don't understand what's going on. And so this is what um, I think they are having the right response to say, as, as Carl Sagan or Hawking or all the uh, Dawkins do, like, there is a thing of worship here. Like, this provokes worship and wonder and awe and spirituality and all this. That's correct. Right? That is something we want to affirm. And it's not um, the, the best opportunity for us to dunk on them or, you know, point out, like, their hypocrisy and all this kind of stuff. But it is an opportunity, I think, for us to point them to the God that they worship in ignorance, to point them beyond what they are seeing to something bigger, a bigger story that we're talking about. Reminds me of uh, the Jews flock of Jesus. Mm. I mean, they just just can't get them there for some reason. Mm. Yeah. Um, because they don't have the taste. Yeah. Jews, Gentile Jews. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. I think maybe because we're made by God, we're all made to worship. Mm-hmm. God made us to worship. For those of us who were maybe you would say lucky enough to be introduced to uh, faith um, as far as religion, quote-unquote, in a positive way. We attribute that to God. To people that maybe weren't raised that way, they end up worshiping in this way. It's a different, and it's like, I think that that's just a natural thing that humans do. Some of us do it one way, some of us do it a different way, depending how we were raised, things we were exposed to. Yeah. And this may be kind of echoing in some way what you just said. It, it almost feels like in some way that that maybe these, you know, very high-level scientists almost have a problem with the label of it all. Mm-hmm. Like they realize there's something there, but they see our label and they see maybe how we react with all this. Yeah. And they don't want to be underneath that banner. Right. And in so many ways that's on us. Yeah. Yeah. I think... At least in my experience, traditionally, the church has often uh, fought science in ways yeah. that you described because, and, and feigned a certainty. Yeah. You know, not embracing mystery, not right. room for science's development, right. but almost wanting to squelch it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm asking myself, like, what are they reacting against yeah. so strongly here right. that they're unwilling to step into that? And yeah. See where that comes from. A lot of what you'll find, a lot of these people will talk about is talk about the humility of science, 
And when people of faith come at them with, you know, they, they say, well, I, there's humility, and that's a thing I see a value in. I don't see a value in, in this. Yeah. It, I kind of see a parallel between qualitative and quantitative research in that mm. quantitative does its best to try to remove subjectivity from it. Yeah. And qualitative acknowledges that we can't get rid of subjectivity and so why not embrace it? I mean, that's a very simplified mm -hmm, mm -hmm. thing, but it's almost like a science without belief in God is trying to do something that's not actually possible and, mm. and say we you know, there's no such thing as yeah. God and all yeah. this, so we're going to be precise and figure all this stuff out and, you know, mm -hmm. and if there's a scientist, you know, with faith in God, they recognize and acknowledge the reality that you can't escape yeah. that truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole other dimension there. Um, yeah, go ahead. So a few months ago I just read the book, uh, Is Atheism Bitter? Okay. Yeah. And uh, statistically, science uh, invariably brings us, it says this, everything is a lot more complex than we thought it was. Yeah. And you get down to 10 to the, you know, so many, uh, just on one little thing. Yeah. And uh, even some of these people you mentioned, they, they said, yeah, you're right, it can't, it couldn't have happened, but extraterrestrial uh, <laughs> life was planted. So they're just... Yeah, right, yeah. We need to say, let's, let's look at statistics. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. I wonder how many scientists are dedicated atheists or agnostics. I go back to a quote of Isaac, As Isaac Asimov that said, I would believe in God if I could find some definite proof that I can see. Right. And this is the scientific method of you have to have something you can test sure, before yeah. it's real. Sure, yeah. Yeah, um, so well, there's a whole, a whole thing there of like, that, that's exactly it. We have the, this idea of like evidence for something, right? Which is valued in science. Science recognizes, like you have to recognize it's not the whole story. Evidence is not the whole picture. There are other things at work, but it's hard to understand how to square those. And I think that's actually why we need to keep that narrative in view. Like what is the story here? What is the larger purpose? What do these things exist for. When we start to see what they exist for and see that they work towards those ends and they bring about um, blessing and cultivation of life and those kinds of things, then I think that naturally brings us to a position of faith and a position of reverence. So I know we're out of time. Uh, one last comment and then we'll go close. Sometimes people bring to their study something that they experience in their lives and they might blame God for this thing. So yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I got here late, Mike. Is this is this the last? Class? I've been told there's one more class, so I, I I'm go I'm going on faith that that's the case. <laughs> so. Uh, um, if there are any uh, questions, comments, anything like that, definitely email me. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, next Sunday will be the last one. Yeah. Thank you all so much.